Hello, folks. This is your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. Before we jump into this week's episode, I have a special announcement. August 18th through the 20th, I've been invited to host a Triad Mental Health Summit. This virtual online conference showcases innovative trends and thought leaders in the mental health and behavioral health industry. Such speakers as Saj Razavi from the Psychedelic Somatic Institute, Kathleen Stengel from NeuroAbilities, Aaron Williams from the National Council, including live interviews I'll be conducting featuring Todd and Vanessa Steinberg from Comoso Design, Ron Anderson from Project Reclaim, and Lori Ignacio and Jody Gearson from the Hawaii Pro Bono Mental Health Center. This event is online and free to attend. So go to triadhq.com slash TMHS to learn more. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Dr. Leandra Clark Harvey. Leandra is a psychologist, executive director of the California Access Coalition, and the Chief Executive Officer of the California Council of Community Behavioral Health Agencies. Leandra completed her PhD in counseling psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and early in her career, she conducted research on the mental health treatment provided to disenfranchised communities and worked at UCLA's and USC's Children's Hospitals in Southern California. Leandra has maintained an impressive record of leadership, including serving on national and local boards, including work with the American Psychological Association, and she was appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom to his Master Plan on Aging Advisory Committee and the Behavioral Health Task Force. Leandra, welcome to our show today. Thank you. Nice to have you here. You know, I know that your mom was in mental health, kind of just starting with you just as a clinician. And I'm curious as to, as you got into this field, what was her influence on you that brought you into this field and currently the positions that you're filling? Sure. Well, my mom really was the start of all of this. She is a counselor and she has been for over 30 years. And of course, when I was little, my mom would say, you know, you can be whatever you want to be. Right. And I would say, OK, I don't know what that is. But the one thing I didn't want to be was a counselor like my mom. I didn't want to work in the behavioral health field because I felt like the people that my mom served didn't look like me, didn't live in my neighborhood. She had a private practice and she worked in some private hospitals. And so for me, I grew up thinking that mental health and substance use disorder treatment was a luxury, something for those that individuals who weren't ethnically and racially diverse or had a diverse socioeconomic background as well. And Obviously, I was incorrect. And along the way, I learned that that wasn't the truth. And, and now I sit here a psychologist. <laughs> my mom couldn't be more proud. But that was my entree into kind of the field. And then I had the opportunity to go to grad school, practice as a licensed professional counselor for a few years, get my PhD, return to California, do some practice at children's hospitals yes. before I decided I want to do something different. And that was really fueled and motivated by the kind of disenfranchised communities that I worked with and the fact that I didn't feel like they were getting well. I had been trained well in all these fancy institutions, but I couldn't give people what they needed. And that was really hard for me to deal with. And that's why I got interested in policy. 
took a job at the Capitol for about six years and then had the opportunity to come and lead CBHA. So that's a kind of a quick overview of how I got to where I am, but it's been serendipity, I would say, that brought me to this place. I appreciate that. It's always nice to have a parent as a model, you know, and watching them do what they do and kind of be an influence on us. You said that when you were watching folks, you couldn't give them what you saw them needing. Mm. What were you seeing them needing that you couldn't give? They had real life daily needs that I couldn't meet. So, you know, kind of when I was a kid and I thought that this was a luxury, I started to feel like that again. Even though I was working disenfranchised communities, you know, doing in-home treatment, using all the best modalities and most culturally friendly and competent modalities, it didn't matter because if they couldn't pay the light bill or they couldn't afford a bus or a taxi across town to get to my office at UCLA to engage in therapy and treatment, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And so that's what I really struggled with. And that's what piqued my curiosity and my frustration about the system that I was working within and really inspired me to look for opportunities to influence the system. And that's ultimately how I ended up in a policy position. It's only good if people can access it, isn't it? You're talking about almost some ways Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, food, shelter, and clothing. We don't, Mm -hmm. we can't self-actualize or do anything else along that pyramid unless those basic things are met. So Help us understand, you came into the position you're in right now with the California Council of Community Behavioral Health Agencies. Tell us what you guys do and help us understand the services you guys provide. Well, we're a statewide advocacy organization that was founded in 1985 by Rusty Selix, who is a mental health giant in our state. He helped co-author Proposition 63, which is the millionaire's tax that now funds the lion's share of behavioral health treatment for Medi-Cal recipients across the state. So we're really proud of that legacy And after six years in the Capitol, Rusty met with me and said, I've been diagnosed with ALS and I am planning my succession and I would like you to come over and lead the organization, to which I responded, no, thank you. (laughs) But he followed up a few times, convinced me to interview, and I realized there that it really was the perfect marriage between my training as a clinician and my passion for impacting communities. Um, And so everything has really come full circle, being able to now advocate for the agencies like the ones that I used to work in, in both California and in Madison, Wisconsin, where I trained initially. Our organization advocates for policy change across the state that will impact our members, our member agencies, which are mental health and substance use disorder clinics across the state of California. They collectively serve over 1 million clients a year. These agencies do what I call God's work. They do whatever it takes to make sure people get the services they need. And it's a very diverse and eclectic group. So we may have one small, tiny agency in a rural county that's serving, you know, that entire county as the main mental health source and substance use disorder source of services. And then we have larger conglomerates, large agencies that are in maybe 30 of our 58 counties. And so it's nice to have such an eclectic and diverse group that really gives us a snapshot. When you look at our members, you're getting a snapshot of what behavioral health delivery service looks like across the state. So it's a privilege. It's an overwhelming privilege in the sense that there are so many diverse needs, but our association really brings people together, agencies together to help serve a diverse clientele. I know the services you offer, they're given in your act with, in terms of leadership, you know, functions, practice resources, professional Mm -hmm. advocacy. Build upon those a little bit more for me, would you and our listeners? 
Sure. So advocacy, I've already talked about. We have a rich legacy there and continue to build off of it. That's a main thread throughout all the work that we do for our members at the Capitol and beyond. Educational resources, conference, policy forums, and then a lot of behind-the-scenes advocacy, not necessarily testifying at a hearing or sponsoring a bill. We do those things, but we also just help our members manage the climate of having a nonprofit, having a business within a county, one of California's 58 diverse counties. So whether that's helping them navigate a relationship or a policy at the local level with their local board of supervisors or their county behavioral health directors, we are there for them at the local level and at the state level and really beyond to help them advocate for what they need. When you help them with that advocacy, where do they then take that advocacy? What do they do with it in a way that's kind of having been equipped by you, supported by you? What do they then do with that? in terms of their own advocacy for themselves. Sure. So sometimes those are small policy changes that make a big difference. So those can be a vote at a board of supervisors meeting, right? That will impact the way that behavioral health treatment is delivered throughout the county. And so whatever policies our members identify, we're there to help them and help them be able to advocate for themselves and most importantly, the clients that they serve. It could be a change in insurance that helps them pay the Mm -hmm. providers that they're employing uh, Mm -hmm. better wages. So we're there to help them negotiate a lot of whether it's business decisions or larger policy advocacy decisions. We're there to support them. And that's really our our main goal there. Our Agencies also do more than what we traditionally think of. Kind of my erroneous thinking when I was a kid, it's just therapy, right? No, they run 988 call centers, right? And we know that that's a federal movement and all states have 988 funding to be able to help with crisis services. We have agencies that provide services solely to older adults and look at their unique needs. Agencies that provide substance use disorder services specifically for those population children. And we have agencies that do it all. There's a lot. So. Yeah, there is a lot. I was, I'm from Los Angeles originally and uh, been away for a while, but that's where I grew up. And right. we're just back there recently. And I know there's just so many, this, this is just nationwide, but so many changes going on right now mm-hmm. and so many mental health needs occurring. In terms of California, just a little sidebar, we were speaking to uh, someone recently on a podcast that were having some great research done on the, a Michigan mental health and Texas mental health being done and some real nice collaborative work occurring. Tell us what some of the challenges in California are that you're seeing and some of the mental health needs specifically that you guys are looking to encourage attention being given to and also some advocacy towards. Yeah, it's really a timely question. The governor just minutes ago finished his press conference for the May revise. So that's basically announcing his budget priorities and Uh, his response to the legislators and stakeholders input about his initial budget release months ago. So we know that in concert with the governor, workforce continues to be our number one priority in terms of policy and advocacy change. It has been for decades with our association. That's why you'll see legislation and policy change changes and policy briefs and advocacy continued on our behalf around workforce. Because at the end of the day, you can dream up all the programs you want and all the changes you need. You can document them. But if you don't have people to carry out the work, then it's not going to be effective. Homelessness kind of goes hand in hand with that, right? We're in a pandemic. Not only are we having a workforce shortage, but we're seeing an exacerbation of behavioral health needs and of housing and homelessness. They're tied together. You really can't separate those two things. When we talk about whole person care in our state, it's about, as you mentioned, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, making sure that basic needs are met and that there's a foundation so that people can be prepared to get the treatment they need, the behavioral health treatment. 
crisis services too. I mean, what we've noted in our state is that many people who are underinsured or uninsured end up going to the emergency room for crisis. You know, yes. when they're we're very, very sick, that's not effective. That's not cost effective. That's not good care. And so being able to have robust crisis services set up like the 988 call centers, mobile crisis units, so that people can get what they need when they need it is helpful. And hand in hand is you know, prevention and early intervention. We have so many members that have provided great prevention and early in- intervention services for youth and their families before things turn into a crisis, right? Yeah, so yeah. when we talk about funding, it has to be really whole person care and whole person funding across all of the different, you know, facets of an individual and all of their needs. Does uh, CBHA get a chance to interact with the governor directly at all? And in terms of influencing understanding of things or impacting maybe some of the decision-making that he's coming across within like an address just minutes ago? Sure. So that's part of our, you know, advocacy priority and aim is to be in constant and in good relationship with the administration, the governor's staff and advisors to make sure that our members' needs are lifted up, they're heard. And so we do that in a variety of ways. We, you know, have meetings with them. We send out, you know, written documents reflecting our priorities and our stances on a variety of issues. And I have to say this governor is very committed and gets behavioral health. That's something that is sometimes rare in top leadership just mm-hmm. because it's so complex, but because of his prior mayorship of San Francisco, understanding and seeing and investigating and trying to solve in many ways the issues around housing, homelessness, behavioral health. It has been a wonderful time to really uplift and highlight the impact of behavioral health conditions on the community. In some ways, under this governor's leadership, it's been less taboo and stigmatized to talk about behavioral health because he's demonstrated that it's okay to have those conversations. And so we do very much try to stay in good communication and, you know, work with the governor's team and others in the state, state leaders and legislators to make sure that our members' needs and more importantly, the people they serve are top of mind and are part of the conversation. That's really good. I was reading on your site, just you have a really nice site and it's kind of fun to peruse. And I was reading about the expansion, going back to what you talked about the workforce, I was reading about the expansion of the behavioral health workforce. And this has some really creative ideas around the goals of, you know, grant and loan forgiveness. You talked about the mm-hmm. apprenticeship mm-hmm. program in California, which I really yes. love the idea of. Yeah. You the school-based mental health initiatives. That's kind of maybe ideally some of the maybe primary prevention possibilities. Yes. Some secondary and tertiary things, but recognizing these mental health conditions early on, which I really love, and then to intervene with early yes. detection. These are some great goals, along with, I know, promoting behavioral health in diverse communities and supporting and guiding mental health agencies and the development and implementation of their services directly and specifically. Really important goals, aren't they? I think so. And I really appreciate you bringing up both, you know, tied to the workforce is the apprenticeship effort. So we've been working yes. with the state of Florida on a joint Department of Labor grant to stand up apprenticeship programs across the state. And the timing couldn't be better. We're having a workforce shortage and the ability to allow folks that don't have to be trained to the degree like I was as a psychologist for many years to enter the workforce and help is so important. We know that integration is what we're really moving towards, meaning that various levels and various positions on teams, on clinical teams, should be able to work together to provide care. 
And I think the state has really took a big nod and a big step towards that. When you look at the peer provider classification that is now going to be able to be reimbursed in our state, that's huge because it's acknowledging that people that don't have the same level of, you know, degree, clinical degrees and educations can be beneficial assets to the care process. And when I talked to you earlier about, you know, I got all this fancy training, which is good, but if people cannot hear me or interact with me because they can't get beyond my degree, they need somebody who's going to talk to them about real needs, basic needs. Sometimes those peer providers and others are able to communicate with them because they're a step away from that space. It's not so foreign. It's not perceived that way. And it's a wonderful way to enhance the team. When I did my training at USC, it was part of a LEND. It's called Leaders in Education, Neuroscience, and Diversity. And there's a few programs throughout the country. And what I learned, the model I was trained on was that I would sit down and do case conceptualization for one client with a pediatrician occupational therapist, social worker, teacher, you name it. We were all at the table bringing all of our various expertise together Mm. to help one person. And that's the way it should be. So my lens has always been very interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. And I think that really is a, a solution that we have to pursue. And I'm glad that in this administration, there's more allowances for it. There's now capabilities to pay people, community health workers, promotoras, others to be able to enter. So the apprenticeship program is going to allow folks at that level to be able to be supported in in attaining their degrees and education so that they can immediately contribute to the workforce. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Whether you're a longtime or first-time listener to Behavioral Health Today, you're probably familiar with Triad, the company that brings you this podcast. But you may not know that Triad also hosts a community for current and aspiring behavioral and mental health professionals, featuring trending content and education and career resources, all for free. If you are a behavioral or mental health professional, or you're studying to become one, join more than 80,000 people on Triad by claiming your free professional account today. Visit us at hellotriad.com slash bht. That's hellotriad.com slash bht. And join the triad community today. Well, that's really super. You said Florida is doing something very similar. You guys are partnering mm-hmm. with that. We I'm are. Cu- I'm curious, and, and not to be too challenging here, but I would imagine that that's going to be very challenging to make it sustainable to have three or four or five professionals with a one person, one case across the board with the immensity of the needs out there. How are you guys doing that? It's really about connecting the system. So the land institutes, that's their model. That's how they train their professionals like me that went through them. But I do find that when you have gone through that type of training that require training, right? You're required to do kind of like a residency and an internship. If you learn that approach early on. As you go out in the field and work other places, that's the mindset you take with you. That's as you become a leader in the field, that's how you start to build your teams. That's how you start to organize your clinics. And though it sounds, you know, oh gosh, that's really expensive. At the same time, I believe it's more expensive to have disparate and siloed care that doesn't communicate so that when someone is in crisis, you're not able to see all the various systems that are interacting with their care. That's more expensive in the long run. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, ideally we want to get to the mental health issues as best we can, knowing that those are kind of the cornerstone that drives so many things. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the adverse childhood experiences on a sure. couple of recent podcasts and right. 
those are very prevalent in, in, in a, a good number of people, particularly those coming to seek our services. But if they can't get to the clinic, if they don't have something to keep the lights on, if they don't have the food, the shelter, the clothing, those ACEs are only as good as they can get the basic things to keep them alive. So as quickly as we can get those things into place, then they can begin to kind of move up. That's right. And get some of these other issues that are very, you know, tormenting and, and, and plaguing for them, you know, day-to-day sure. dressed. Yeah, I really like that. Anything else about the program you want to share that uh, is of interest and kind of get you excited? Well, I'm really excited about, as you can tell, about everything our members do and what we're able to uh, partner with them about. But also, you know, the 988 work is huge. And, yeah. you know, it's happening across the, the country. I sit on an advisory committee for women's services at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration under the Assistant Secretary. And one of the conversations that we've been having recently is around 988 implementation, scaling it up, making sure that communities have what they need. And I'm so proud that half of the 988 call centers, about half, our CBHA members. So we're involved in that conversation and working with other allied state advocacy partners to make sure that legislation, framework, regulations are, are in place so that these centers can continue to provide the quality service that they have been since the 50s. We have 988 call centers that were previously the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Centers. They just flipped that over. And the reason they did is because there was such a nice track record of doing good work. So with 988, it's a huge opportunity. Again, I want to mention workforce because in order to have those call centers up and running and people ready to answer the call, there has to be enough folks in place. There have to be enough people at those call centers in the community working together. And that's going to take some time to really figure out how everyone, law enforcement, 988, and others can work together in a crisis but I think it's very doable and just really proud of our centers and the excellent work that they've done. That's so good. We had a chance to have the senators on our show a little while back that helped push through the 988 numbers and yeah. really a fascinating show uh, to listen to, kind of just the thinking around it, all the support they got from all the mental health centers, mm-hmm. you know, like you're describing right now, but appreciating what you're saying that in order to get a, you, you get a call in, but there's a number of other things that are set into motion. That's just a pebble in oh, the yeah. pond that sets into Definitely. place a number of ripples whether it's a crisis response team going out, is it the police, is it the social workers, is it some kind of mental health professional? There's a lot of intricate pieces, aren't there, that go into that one call. Give us a little bit larger sense of some of the things you're seeing needing to be put into place to properly staff or to facilitate that 988 being a really an effective and efficient service. Well, let me be clear. I believe that it is already an effective and efficient service. When you look at the national data across states, California is way ahead of the curve. And I think it's because our call centers have been doing this work for so long already. Of course, they need more and more people and volunteers and employees. But again, it's on that whatever it takes model and they're, they're figuring it out. Our call centers in California never close. And the call centers are answering calls, not just from people within the state, but if you have a California number and you've moved out state, your call is going directly to California. So California has really been held up as a model for call centers and the excellent work that they're doing. Really, really proud of it. That's why I bring it up again. But you're right. It is very intricate. It's it's working with telecom. It's working with 911, the Office of Emergency Services, law enforcement, et cetera. Everyone has to be aligned in this. And I'm really proud of the strides that our state is making and working so hard to figure this out. I know the governor's office and administration is working on developing kind of protocols and plans for how all of this is going to work. But I have full confidence that we're going to continue to be the leader in this area and hopefully provide the services that so many people need. 
Well, it sounds like you guys are doing some really great things. I was going to ask, how are the lives of the mental health professionals involved with CBHA and also the lives of those receiving your services being impacted? What are you hearing? I get great feedback. I'm still in the position. The board continues to employ me, so I think we're doing all right. (laughs) But no, but in all seriousness, our members are very grateful for any advocacy help they can get because, as I mentioned, they're out there doing whatever they can in the trenches just figuring it out. And as a past clinician, I have great appreciation and understanding for that kind of mode of getting things done. And when you have a statewide advocacy organization that's able to, you know, advocate on their behalf, lift their voices up to the policymakers, I think that's very, very helpful to them. So we, as the staff of CBHA, take that mission very seriously. That is our number one priority. And so our members seem to be very pleased. And when they're not, they'll tell you because they play as dues. And we're able to shift and pivot and have experts on hand to try a different method, right? The feedback has been really great, and I feel really proud to be the leader. I think of the clients they serve, they continue to serve those people because they're getting good services from our members. And so as I see them continue to touch lives in so many ways, from therapy sessions, inpatient, you know, outreach into, you know, populations who are disenfranchised, like homeless individuals, and also outreach and work with schools. Our members are doing so much and people are getting healed. And that's the point of it all. But there's still so much to do, especially with the pandemic and the impact that it's had on society in general. You've got some great energy and it's really fun to be in this back and forth with you here. I'm kind of curious after this many years in the field and doing the work you're doing in such really important ways, what's the juice that drives you right now and kind of gets you up in the morning and... <laughs> Kind of brings you the joy, the most joy that keeps you going in this position. Other than my four and six-year-old, two little rambunctious <laughs> ah, boys. There you go. <laughs> yeah, two little rambunctious boys that turn my hair grayer and grayer yeah, every that's day. Awesome. So I have personal motivation, right? But also, I honestly think, you know, as I've shared with you my story, my disbelief in the utility of behavioral health treatment to understanding that, practicing that, and now advocating for that. It's been a thread throughout everything I've done. And I mentioned serendipity. I never thought that I would be a mental health practitioner. I never thought that I'd be working in state government and at the Capitol. I never thought that I'd be a lobbyist. And I definitely never thought I'd be a CEO of a mental health advocacy organization and behavioral health advocacy organization representing all these people across California. But I am. And it feels right. And it feels for full circle. And I just lean into what's next and really enjoying the journey and feeling like, My purpose is to use my voice to lift up the plight of so many people that I used to work with that didn't have, you know, a megaphone, right? Weren't able to voice their conditions to the next level of policymakers. So I take that very, very seriously. It's nice to be able to give voice for those that can't, for themselves until they can. Definitely. And that's a nice start. You know, as we begin to wind down for today, I'd I'd love you to leave our listeners that practice in California or for those in other states that are listening to our show that might have a similar council for behavioral health services in their state Mm -hmm. on joining this type of community agency and the importance of doing so. Yeah, so the National Council for Mental Wellbeing is in many ways our national organization that our organization belongs to. In many ways, we're the California arm or one of the California arms for them. And so I think that, you know, every state has a behavioral health advocacy organization or some type of organization like ours. And I think that every sector needs an advocacy organization. Every client needs the support to really 
move towards the healing that they need. And CBHA is the advocacy organization that represents the full spectrum of behavioral health services. And the clients they serve are just as diverse and resilient as the members that belong to our association. So I really see that um, mirroring of the work that our members do and the people they serve. And I think that that is beautiful. And if you look at our board of directors, if you look at the members in our association, they also reflect the communities they serve. 40% of our members, their CEOs identify as BIPOC. I think that's huge, especially in this day and age. And we're seeing a lot of changes here on corporate boards and nonprofit boards. And it's so nice to be able to have such a diverse, eclectic, representative board that's serving a diverse community as well. Really good. Well, you guys are doing some great things. I would love the honor for our listeners to learn more about you and also about CBHA. How can they follow up with you after listening to our show today? Sure. You can go to our website, www.bccbha.org. I also mentioned the National Council for Mental Wellbeing and the 988 call. Use that number. If you're in crisis, if you have a need, just call. That's what that number's there for. And yeah. they will get you directed to this assistance that you need right away. Really good. Well, Leandra, you're doing some great things. It's been great to have you on the show today. And thanks for all thank your you. work. Thank you for the invitation. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Leandra and me today. It's always great to have you with us as well. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and an archive of all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So check out our webpage if you would, triadhq.com slash BHT and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show. We look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Help Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.